Okay, listen. We have a little bit of family business to take care of today. So if this is your home church and uh, this is your church family, I'm really glad that you're here today. We have some things we need to discuss. If you're visiting today, I'm sorry. I want to apologize to you. It's not the best Sunday to visit, really. Uh, You're welcome to listen. You're welcome to rejoice with us about what the Lord is doing. But this is really a family discussion that we need to have for those that call this church home. So this is not your home. You are welcome, but whatever. In the seat in front of you, you all have a black flyer. Pull that out, please. That flyer says, pray for Ventura. I want you to take that. I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians and stick that flyer in there right now. 1 Corinthians. Put that flyer in there and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for the church. Those ones that you called out of the world pulled into your heart and have sent back into the world to represent your heart. Thank you that we, the church, exist, Jesus Christ, for your glory. We thank you that the church is not our invention, it is your passion. We thank you that the church is not our experiment, it is your blood-bought bride. And we are privileged to be members thereof this morning. We thank you for the church universal of which we are members. And we thank you for the local church and this little body that you've established here and the work that you're doing in our midst. And we ask that in your wonderful way, Lord, you'd invite us deeper into your heart for the coastlands this morning. You'd reveal to us to a further degree your passion for this place, what it is you want to do, and our involvement in that. Lord, we humble ourselves under your mighty hand and say, who are we that you'd be mindful of us, much less call us into your passionate work, into your mission. Thank you, Lord. We ask that we'd hear the call this morning. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the senior leader over this church. You are the chief shepherd, the senior pastor. We humble ourselves under you. We profess that supernatural reality that you are our primary utmost senior leader and that we follow you by grace and with the help of your Holy Spirit and according to the authority and the standard of your word. We ask that this morning you would lead us and you'd strengthen our feet to walk the course set before us, Lord. Speak to us now, Lord. We ask you together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Reality has always felt called to the coastlands. This church, reality, has always felt called to the coastlands. We felt that way months before this church ever had its first service, which was September 7th of 2003. We're coming up on our five-year anniversary this September 7th. But before we ever had a service, we felt from the Lord that our calling was to the coastlands, We would be based here in Carpinteria, but the reach would be broader. We just felt that. We just sensed that as we begin to pray. And that was confirmed through various scriptures that the Lord used to sort of, you know, speak that to our hearts. One of those is Isaiah 42, verses 12 through 13. It's one of the theme verses of this church, very potent in prayer uh, and prophetic from the Lord. It says, Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. Sounds like a song I know. (laughs) He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. Now, it seems like no big deal. Uh, Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. We'd read it a million times before. But when you're praying and the Holy Spirit is doing something and he confirms what he's doing through a scripture, it's like a lightning rod, you know what I mean? It's like a bolt of lightning. It's like, whoa! All of a sudden, it's just that that message for the Lord, that kairos, that, that critical moment, prophetic message from the Lord. Now, When we employ scripture this way, we do do realize and recognize that Isaiah 42 had a particular context. 
in which it was given to God's people Israel and in which the original intent and continued meaning is to be found. But because it is God's word, God can take from it and apply it to our lives at certain moments in a prophetic need at a prophetic moment. It doesn't change the original meaning, nor do we ever base doctrine or, or theology on that revelation. But we allow the Lord, when he's stirring in our hearts about coastlands, and then he brings something like this to you, you say, wow, Lord, thank you for that confirmation. Thank you for speaking to me in that way. So the Lord spoke to us before this church ever started that the scope and the reach was to be the coastlands here. And what we have in mind when we say the coastlands is this region where the 101 goes along the coast. You know, it kind of comes, it's going inland through LA and all that stuff. And then around about Ventura, it just comes and just hits the coast, runs up the coast, right past Carpinteria here, continues along the coast through Santa Barbara and Goleta, and then around Gaviota curves back inland. So we're talking about Ventura, Carpinteria, Summerlin, Montecito, Santa Barbara, and Goleta, and also in our hearts, the Lord has encouraged sort of the outlying areas of that, such as Oxnard, Camarillo, and Ojai. Uh, The fact that our church is called to the coastlines in those areas is evidenced by the fact that that's who is coming to this church, people from all those places. And so we have home groups in Goleta and we have home groups in Ventura and Oxnard and Camarillo and all these different places. It's been evident since day one of this church that our calling was broader than Carpinteria, though we would be based here. And what we find ourselves as essentially is a commuter church. About two-thirds or more of the people that come to this church don't live in Carpinteria. They live in those outlying coastal areas, which means every Sunday when they come to church, they're leaving their neighborhoods They're leaving their neighbors. They're leaving oftentimes a place where they work. They're driving past friends and coworkers and acquaintances and businesses that they frequent to come here to this church. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. We believe that Reality Carpinteria is anointed by the Lord as sort of a a gathering place, sort of a well, sort of a sending church, a well being that location where people would come from all over to get refreshed. And that seems to be the testimony of what God has been doing with us. People come from long distances. I'm looking at a sister over on my left that's been driving from Orange County every week. There's another brother on my left that's been driving from Bakersfield with his family every week. So people are coming from further than just the coastlines. And it's seems that what God does is refresh them here, get them on fire for Jesus Christ, and they're sent back out to live their Christian lives, be it in their families, their schools, their place of work, or the mission field, whatever God is doing. It just seems to be the anointing here. Other churches have different anointings. Their thing is reaching the homeless or mercy ministry or whatever it might be, but that seems to be what God is doing here, and that's consistent with what he's told us prophetically and sort of the inclinations and giftings of a lot of the leadership. So we're a commuter church, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but there's a reality that goes with that, which I said a moment ago. People are leaving their neighborhoods and the businesses that they frequent and primary relationships and friends and the places where they play, leaving those places to come here. And, and that's a reality that I think we need to think about. The second reality is this. Because so many people are coming from so far, we have an overcrowding problem at this church. We've had too many people. It's summertime right now, so attendance is much lower than usual. That's just what happens at the church in summer. I don't know what the deal is with that. But anyway, uh, over the last few months, we've turned away hundreds of people from church. They come, they show up a little late, they can't get their kids in the classrooms. They've got to say, sorry, the classroom's full. We can't possibly take another kid. And, and they leave and, you know, we're turning people away from church. At one point, we had dozens of people sitting out in the foyer and we realized a fire marshal's going to have a conniption fit if he finds out about this. So we couldn't let him sit in the foyer. First service, we have an overflow room in the youth uh, room over there where the message is on a screen and there's been, you know, several dozen people sitting over in there during the service. So we've got an overcrowding problem. It's a good problem to have as a church. It's not a bad problem, but it's something we've had to address. And so what we've been asking ourselves for several months is how can we accommodate all of those people here? There's some real challenges to that. Number one, we have a big parking problem, don't we? We have a really big parking problem, sometimes exacerbated by your parking habits. 
But we have a big parking problem here. The other thing that, that makes the situation difficult is we, we're committed to this building. We, we, ju- we just signed another five-year lease on this building, so we're here for another five years. Uh, the other thing is we committed a lot of money, you know, to building out this building. It's just an empty, nasty warehouse shell when we first got it. So we seem to be pretty connected to this building for a time, and, and yet the thought process was, what are we going to do to fit all those people in here? So, of course, you add multiple services. You know, when we started as a church, we just had one service. That lasted for a year. On the anniversary of our uh, first year, you know, we added a second service. We had a second service for a couple years. And then last year on our anniversary, we added a third service. Now, the thought was we need to make room for growth. We're turning people away from church. Um, We need another service. At the time, we had an evening service. Some of you went to it. It was 7.30 p.m. It was a great service, right? It was fun. It was good. It was evening time. There was a, you know, vibe about it. And a lot of people were coming from other churches, which was great. That's cool. You know what I mean? They attend other churches in the area. In the evening, they come here and be blessed and fellowship with us. We loved that. But it didn't seem that people who expected to go on Sunday mornings and couldn't get here would decide, oh, I'll go Sunday night. So we, th- we thought we need another Sunday morning service. Our services are long. I don't know if you've noticed that. Has anybody noticed that? <laughs> By American standards, American standards, they're long. Our services are two hours solid every week, sometimes a little bit more. So that presents some time difficulties for fitting three services in the morning. That, that's six hours if you did them back to back. You need at least half an hour between services to get people out and to get people in. So that's nine hours that you need in the morning. I don't know if you noticed, but the morning's not nine hours long. So, you know, we, we had a bit of dif- a difficulty here. Seven and a half hours. I'm not good at math, but whatever. Long time, longer than the morning. So what did we do? We added a service at 1.30. Now, friends of mine have churches with multiple services, and they have a 1.30 service. And a friend of mine that pastors a church in the L.A. area, actually Montebello, which is near Disneyland, their 1.30 service is their most, pa- most packed service. It's at 1.30, it rocks, it was working, and so we're thinking, okay, after much prayer, we're thinking, okay, 1.30, that's what we'll do, that'll work. It didn't work. I don't know why people won't come to church here at 1.30. It might be because the beach is one block away. <laughs> that might have something to do with it. But, you know, we've been having that service now for nine months, and there's people there. There's 100 to 150 people there every week. But on a Sunday morning in first and second service, there's 600 or more people here, just adults, every single week. And, and you see, even the whole time that we had that 130 service, it, it wasn't helping the overcrowding problem. People would come, they're standing in the foyers, they're there with their kids crying, saying, I can't get in the classroom, there's no seats for me, what do I do? And we'd hand them a little note that says, third service is for you, it's awesome, there's like 400 empty seats, and it's great, and you can come and you can sit anywhere that you want. And we found that they wouldn't come back. It just didn't seem to be working for them. It wasn't solving the overcrowding issue at the first two services. It didn't solve the problem. So today will be the last third service that we have, at 1.30 at least. It'll be the last one that we have. I know you usually go, I can't even look at you right now, Michael. (laughs) It's not doing what we had hoped it do. So we're going to let it go. We're going to let it go. So as we're thinking, third service isn't working. How do we get all those people here? How do we make space for them? We started to look at other buildings. Even though we made a substantial investment in this one and we had that lease, we thought, well, maybe, Lord, you have another building for us. There's not many buildings in this town bigger than this one. There's certainly not one better located, nor were we able to find one that would meet our needs. We looked at everything in town. There was nothing that would meet our needs. So we started looking at property. And we looked at buying property and developing property. We looked at that very seriously. And alls we hit were dead ends and closed doors. So it caused us to press into the Lord in prayer all the more. And what we discovered is what we thought to be an overcrowding problem was actually an opportunity. What appeared to be a problem was actually an opportunity. Overcrowding was a thing that God used to show us how to fulfill his vision for reality on the coastlands. 
Overcrowding was a problem that God used to begin to show us how to fulfill his vision for us on the coastland. So he got us thinking differently. He got us thinking outside of the box. We figured we're a commuter church. It's always going to be that way. We need a bigger box. He got us thinking outside of the box. And instead of trying to accommodate everybody here, instead of making people come here, let's take the church there. Let's go to where they are. Now, this was consistent with another prophetic word that the Lord had given us on August 31st, 2004 at a prayer meeting. It's Isaiah 54, verses 2 through 3. and says this, Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. Spare not, lengthen your cords, and strengthen your pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. And so that began to come back to our spirit, the Holy Spirit giving us remembrance and we begin to pray in a whole new direction. And that's exactly what we believe the Lord is calling us to do is to spread abroad to the right and to the left and to enlarge the place of the tent, so to speak, and to erect multiple tents in multiple places. So reality is going to be going to a multi-site format and starting Reality Ventura. Now realize this. What Reality Ventura is not meant to be is a solution to the overcrowding problem at Reality Carpinteria. It is not meant to be a solution. The problem was the impetus or the occasion that got us praying. It is a way that the Lord got our attention as we saw it as a problem when in reality it was an opportunity. Okay, so we're not looking at Reality Ventura as a way to solve the problem. Here's what we discovered as we pressed into the Lord in prayer because of crisis, we discovered that we have a passion for that city, that we have a passion for Ventura. And we begin to realize that we have hundreds of people that come to this church in Carpinteria that also have a passion burning in their bones for the city of Ventura. You see, we just didn't know how to fulfill the vision of the coastlands. Our vision was too small. We just didn't realize all that God would be doing until the problem got us praying outside the box and the problem went away and the opportunity presented itself. What we understand about reality is by God's work, it's a network of churches. Carpinteria, Reality Los Angeles, Reality Stockton, Reality London in the works. By the way, Mark and Lizzie who are starting Reality London will be with us next Sunday. We'll get to see them one more time before they go. Uh, Reality San Francisco, as we just introduced you to Dave and Ashley Lomas a couple weeks ago. So reality is already a network of churches, but here's what's going to happen now. Reality Coastlands will be a network of local churches here in this area. Reality Coastlands will be a network of local churches here in this area. Carpinteria, Ventura, and more. And each of these sites, campuses, locations will be its own church. It will do everything that a church does. But it will be connected, they will be connected by teaching. There will be common teaching. We'll share the teaching of the word of God. Now, here's why we feel that we have permission from the Lord to do this is because we see a model for this in the New Testament. If you read your Bible carefully, you'll notice that some of the New Testament epistles are written to networks of churches across cities and regions. Networks of churches across cities and regions. For example, 1 Peter 1.1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So Peter was writing to networks of churches throughout cities and regions. We see that Paul did the same thing in his instruction, Galatians 1, 1 through 2. 
Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Galatia was a region. It was a region in Central Asia Minor. And in that region, there were cities. In those cities, there were churches. And Paul's instruction, Paul's doctrinal teaching was sent to networks of of local and regional churches. And we see that the sharing of the teaching was common among the churches. In these network of churches, they had their own leadership of elders, but they were also under the teaching influence of Paul. Colossians 1.16 is evidence of this. Paul writes, When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So in the early church, there was a sharing of the teaching in a network of churches. So the New Testament gives us an example of leadership that is both local and not. An example of leadership that is both local and broader. It was a practice of Paul and the early church to establish elders at every church or congregation they started. It was the practice of the early church to establish elders at the churches. And what's evidence in Acts chapter 20 and 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in 1 Peter chapter 5 is that the elders are to lead the church. Churches are to be led by elders underneath the headship of Jesus Christ who is the senior leader. Underneath Jesus Christ, there is to be a plurality of elders. A plurality of elders. And elders in the New Testament clearly by their job description, are pastors. Ordained or not ordained, it doesn't matter. Shepherds called by God. The church is to be led by pastor, elders, and a plurality thereof. A plurality thereof. The only one that is the senior leader or the senior pastor is Jesus Christ. And then a plurality of elders. Now, In that eldership, there may be a first among equals. Not someone who's senior to, not above, but who is with, but takes a leadership role and they lead together. And that's the form of church government that we have at this church. There is a plurality of leaders, uh, elders, pastors, and we lead together. No decision that's of any consequence, has anything less than 100% agreement among the pastor, elders, and staff. 100% agreement. There's no dictatorship here. There's no senior leader or senior pastor. There are equals. There is a first among equals who happens to be me, called by God in case you didn't know, but we lead together in accountability, one mind in one accord as a team. And that will be the situation at the campuses that we're going to plant in this area. They will have their own campus pastor and pastors. They will have elders that oversee that church just as this one does. Who is that campus pastor? Who are those pastors and elders? God knows. We're not exactly sure yet. We just know that God is leading us in this direction and we're trusting him for some very huge details. So, but those local leaders will be under the mentorship and the love and in relationship with the pastors, elders, leaders at this church and we will lead on the coastline together. So every church in the New Testament that was established was autonomous but there was teaching and influence that was not local and yet authoritative. We see a great example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you'll look there. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is writing to the church or the churches in Corinth, and there are some situations that arrived. And Paul is going to give some authoritative teaching from a distance. But what we'll notice is that the local leadership is going to be expected to carry out 
those biblical precepts. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. Here we see, when a situation arose, authoritative doctrinal teaching. But the local leadership was expected to lead. The local leadership was expected to lead. They were going to have to remove the wicked man from their midst, verse 13 says. They were going to have to exercise church discipline, but there was this authoritative doctrinal teaching from Paul that was shared amongst the churches in Corinth. Paul was writing authoritatively to churches he was not present bodily in. He was using the technology of his day to communicate to networks of churches, to the building up of the church and the glory of Jesus Christ. Paul was exercising leadership from a distance through teaching. That didn't mean that at these local congregations, there wasn't any other teaching or preaching. There was, and there was leadership. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 2 are evidence of this. Paul writes to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So Paul was teaching, or had a teaching ministry, which was exercised in networks of churches, but he expected local leadership and elders to practice church discipline, among other things, and he used the technology of his day to accomplish this. But the local leadership would engage in teaching, preaching, they would exercise church discipline, and there was discipleship. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 2, those things that you've learned from me and trust to faithful men who will in turn will entrust it to others. So Paul provided the theological instruction, but the local leadership put it in practice in a way that was proper in their context. Paul provided air support so that the ground war could go forward in those areas. So Reality Carpinteria is going to be providing air support in here through doctrinal uh, instruction so that the ground war in Ventura can go forward. Not only do we have this example in scripture, but we have it in church history as well. One pertinent example is... Francis Asbury. Francis Asbury was a Methodist who was uh, under the mentorship of John Wesley who started Methodism in Europe. And just about the turn of the 1700s to the 1800s, he was sent here by John Wesley to America to establish his churches. When Francis Asbury came to America, he rode a quarter of a million miles on a horse. How many miles are on your car and how long did it take him to get there? He rode a quarter of a million miles on horseback and preached 16,000 sermons. What he would do is go to an area and he would preach and he would establish a church, a congregation. There would be local leadership and elders, a campus pastor and pastors, so to speak. And then he would continue to the next region, establish more, and then to con- he would continue to teach throughout these churches in a sort of apostolic way, going from place to place, teaching authoritatively. Not in the sense of a New Testament author apostolic, but in the sense of having leadership influence over multiple churches as given by God. 
whereas a local pastor has leadership and influence over a church. The problem with this methodology of horseback and preaching over and over again and going personally to all these other churches is that he died at a very young age. And when he died, he couldn't walk. He couldn't move. He was so thoroughly spent in his methodology. With technology, we can do the same thing without killing effective leaders. I personally am excited about that. (laughs) Not that I don't want to see Jesus, but I have young children at home, quite frankly. So what we intend to do is like Paul in the New Testament, like Francis Asbury in American Methodism, is we will be using technology of our day to reach further. That is video projection streamed live via the internet and or satellite. So in these campuses that we have, the teaching that happens here will minutes later be uploaded and sent to those other churches. Right now, Church Reality Ventura. They will have their own worship team, their own leadership, their own children's ministry, their own youth ministry, their own hospitality, their own home groups, and all these various things. But we will share the teaching. We'll all be receiving common doctrinal instruction. And then as that air support goes out, the ground war will go forward with that congregation that God establishes there. Now, concerning the use of the technology that is available now, I want us to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Look at verse 22. This is Paul's strategy for ministry. Very important. Paul's strategy for ministry. He says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Notice what Paul says. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means, I want you to mark that phraseology, that I might by all means save some and I do all things for the sake of the gospel. By all means, he wanted the gospel message and doctrinal instruction and the fact that Jesus is the only name given among men under heaven by which men could be saved. By all means, he wanted that message to go forward for the furtherance of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom. And so he sailed on ships. He walked on roads. He wrote letters. He made tents. When it was expedient, he had people circumcised. And when it wasn't expedient, he told them not to be circumcised. Whatever lent itself to the furtherance of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ, he did. By all means available, he wanted to see people saved. That was Paul's methodology, Paul's strategy for ministry. And the church has realized that throughout history. We could go much deeper into this, but a couple examples will do. In the 15th century, Johann Gutenberg created the printing press. This changed everything. This changed the whole world. All of a sudden, printed materials were readily available to the general population. Before that, very few people had books, Bibles, doctrinal writings, theological writings, or writings of any other kind, because they all had to be handwritten, copied, Hand done. Now with the invention of the printing press, the whole world changed in its form and ability to communicate. And guess who capitalized on it like nobody else? The church. The church capitalized it. The church happened to be, I believe, by the sovereignty of God at a pivotal moment in history, the birth of the Reformation. And the reason that the Reformation was able to take root is because Martin Luther and others were able to write things, have the typeset made, and have them printed out and distributed. And this was key in delivering people from a works-based sacramental understanding of Christianity into salvation by grace through faith alone. And it was able to further the fact that 
The Bible is our sole authority. And now it was possible for people to have a Bible and to begin to read and see that that salvation wasn't found in the sacraments and you didn't need the approval of the Pope to be saved. You needed Jesus Christ whose work upon the cross was finished and that it was finished and we were saved by grace through faith. This changed the world. This changed Christianity forever. And the reason was that the church was savvy enough to lay hold of the latest technology available to them. Had they not done that, the world, the world would be different. Because the reformers had great influence, not only in theology, but in society, all throughout Europe and subsequently the rest of the world. Notice that in the Reformation, the gospel didn't change the method and ability to communicate it did. In fact, what the technology allowed was for the perversions of the gospel to be corrected. Instead of subtracting from biblical authority or the gospel or the message of Jesus Christ, it allowed the distortions to be corrected in a way they never could before because these things were readily available. Then around 1540 in England, the Reformation was just getting started. It was under King Henry VIII. He had perverted reasons to reform. It's because he was married to a woman that he didn't like and he wanted the Pope to annul his marriage and the Pope refused to do so. So he began to go into the Reformation to break off of the Roman Catholic Church so that he could do morally whatever it is he wanted to do. But those seeds that King Henry... uh, Uh, sort of planted through his maligning, through his perversion, began to take root and there was a bishop named Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer was made the Archbishop of Canterbury by King Henry VIII. He became the head over the broken off church from the Roman Catholic Church in England known as the Anglican Church or the Church of England. He did something absolutely revolutionary. He had the Bible printed in English. It had been done before, but he had a big version printed in English and placed in every church in England. It's called the Great Bible. It was also called the Chained Bible because there was so much demand that they would chain it in the front of the church. But what happened was people came and for the first time in the history of England, they read the word of God for themselves and the world changed. And the reason the world changed in England and subsequently here, the reason there was such vast theological and social change is because someone was savvy enough in the church to lay hold of the technology available for the furtherance of the gospel. George Whitfield, in his life, great evangelist many have heard of, in his life, he preached over 18,000 sermons to 10 million people, live, 10 million people. This was before microphones, this was before amplification. People would gather in a field, sometimes the greatest estimates are 30,000 people gathered in a field and George Whitfield would preach to them. When he was done, he would be coughing up blood for hours. It so ravaged his vocal cords. Billy Graham has reached in his lifetime live over 210 million people. 10 million for Whitfield, 210 for Billy Graham. That doesn't count radio television, film, all the other ways that Billy Graham has communicated. Live, in person, 210 million people. What was the difference between 10 million for Whitfield and 210 for Billy Graham? Technology. And the willingness of Christians to lay hold of it and use it in a way which was innovative. You see, Billy Graham was using all new methods to convey the same old message. All new methods, the same old message. You ever heard a Billy Graham sermon? Just as simple as it could ever be. The same good old gospel message. But he was using methods that were revolutionary and that were on the cutting edge of technology. Giant sound systems through which the spoken word could be amplified through a whole stadium. Giant screens where he could be seen, so on and so forth. Billy Graham was willing to use all means that he might save some. 
all means that he might save some. And you know what nobody's saying right now is, oh, man, I wish Billy hadn't plugged in. Billy was doing so good before he got a microphone. And then he just, I mean, just kind of fell away from the faith. He just really went south when he got into that whole technology thing. It would have been so much better if he had just stayed pure. Nobody's saying that. It's obvious that what the church needed to do was lay hold of all means that more might be saved. Concerning Christians and the use of technology and innovation, in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, radio came on the scene. And Christians, thank the Lord, were quick to take advantage of this new means of communication. Same message, new method. Same message, new method and means and medium for communicating it. Everything changed at that point. Now we had radio preachers. Now the preaching of the word of God could go out over the airways and there were those preaching live. There were those like J. Vernon McGee, God bless him, who would just sit and read through the Bible and just comment on it as he went. There's recorded sermons being broadcast and it was reaching new people and new places over the airways. And it was wonderful. But what is so common to a lot of the church is that there were those who were opposed. In 1923, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, better known as Biola, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles started its own radio station. They wanted to reach more people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. At that time, the founder was still alive. His name was T.C. Horton. And the dean at that time was a name I'm sure you've heard of, R.A. Torrey, great theologian whose books I own. And what T.C. Horton and R.A. Torrey said was, we are opposed to the gospel going over the airwaves because we believe the airwaves to be the realm of Satan because the Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air. These were incredibly intelligent men who loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength but they missed, they just didn't see how that technology was to be laid hold of for the glory of God, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It wasn't to be surrendered to secularism. It was to be laid hold of. It was to be capitalized upon. And it was this very thing, actually, at that moment in history, the exploitation of the new mass media industry, radio, that allowed conservative Christianity to rebound after the onslaught of Darwinism. Conservative and fundamentalist Christianity had gone underground for quite a while, had hid in the sand at the onslaught of Darwinism and the Scopes trial. And it was when they laid hold of this new mass media industry, particularly radio, that conservative Christianity began to rebound in America. But there was profound resistance at times. Because it was something new, there were those that thought, well, if it's new, it can't be good. It's got to be from the devil or at least carnal. The first film projector was invented by a Christian. You know who he was? Thomas Edison. He invented the first film projector. Thomas Edison was a Christian. He invented the film projector. He patented the device and he gave the patent to his church. And they rejected it. That's new. Church doesn't do that. We don't want it. Ouch. Probably should have laid hold of that little bit of technology. (laughs) In the late 19th century, the first movie was released in America. And in the early 20th century, the first movie theater was built. Did you know that seven of the first 10 movies ever created had the word passion in their title because they were about the life and times and work of Jesus Christ? Seven of the first 10 films ever created for the big screen had the title Passion because they were made about the life of Jesus Christ. This was the, the the fact is that the church was among the first to use revolutionary technology. Brand new means, brand new medium, brand new method, same old message. The message doesn't change. The methodology changes. Did you know that the number one viewed film in all the history in all the world is Jesus of Nazareth by Campus Crusade? More humans have viewed that film than any other film in the history of the world. Can you imagine 
if the voices that resisted had won the day, if the naysayers who said, that's not our tradition, that's new, we don't do that, our fathers didn't do that, we've never done that, if those voices had prevailed, how many millions wouldn't have seen on film the life of Jesus Christ? Did you know this? That in America, there are more large screens in churches than there are in all the movie theaters in America. More large screens in churches than in all the movie theaters in America. What we discover is that we are a culture that is radically screen-oriented. See, you're all looking at it right now, and then you're looking at me, you're all looking at the screen. We are a culture that is radically screen-oriented. From TV to film to internet, screens and videos are the most pervasive form of communication right now. And just like Paul used the technology of his day, and the technology of his day was written letters, to minister the truth of God's word to network of churches, networks of churches, we are endeavoring to do the same. But with the technology of our day, with screens and video, and the ability to stream it live. And here's what we believe. We believe it's a God thing. We believe it's something that God is doing right now. We believe that the will of God is to capitalize on technology. The perverts and the pornography industry are ripping at this technology. They're on the bleeding edge of it. Why should the church give it to the perverts and to pornography? The church, as we were in the film ministry, should be on the cutting edge. Not for the sake of being cool, not because we want to be relevant, but because we want to be obedient to the Great Commission and to the ministry philosophy of Paul, who was to, by all means, get the gospel message out. We see God doing this all over the world. This is not anything that we invented. We're not the first ones to do it. But we see these campuses, this multi-site thing happening and working and more people being reached. A new method to communicate the same message. And what we believe as church leadership is that we're being obedient in doing this. Now, you might ask, what's the difference between a reality campus as we'll have in Ventura, and a reality church plant. And there is a difference. We actually call it a church birthing, not a church planting, because it's more labor-intensive than just planting something. You just, when you're planting, you just dig a hole in the ground, stick it in a little water. We're talking about birthing the dang thing. You know what I mean? That's what we do at churches. Trust me, it's been cool. Um, what's the difference between reality campus and reality church plant? Well, for the church plant... We laid hands on men and women and individuals and teams who were called to a region. Tim and Lindsay Chaddock and their team were called to Los Angeles and are called to Los Angeles. And they're thinking, how can we be more effective in this area with the technology and the opportunities God has given us? Josh and Andrea Stockton, were, or Josh and Andrea Kaler were called to Stockton along with their team. And they're thinking, how can we be effective to reach this area that God has called us to? And they're also looking at a multi-site format. So those were people that had a call and a burden for those specific areas. We have a calling and a burden and an anointing for the coastlands. This is what God has called us to reach and given us a burden for. So our next step is being more effective in reaching more people in the area that God has given us. We realize that we will not be the only church in Ventura, nor do we think we'll be a better church in Ventura. We bless the churches that are in Ventura. We celebrate the churches that are in Ventura. But there's about another 100,000 people that need to get saved. So we're pretty sure that there's room there. And we feel that God has called us to the coastline. So there'll be a a difference in each of those church plants that we do, LA, Stockton, London, San Fran, Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd over that church. For our area here, Jesus Christ would be the chief shepherd over reality coastlands. And then those multi-site, those campuses will work together for the glory of Jesus Christ. So 
LA and those other places are a new body. Ventura is an extension of this body. The message will be shared because we feel reached to teach the coastlands without doctrinal instruction. The teaching and preaching from the pulpit on Sunday will be the air support so that the ground war can go forward. Now, the ground war is all those normal things that a church does. There will be other teaching and preaching. There will be discipleship. There will be church discipline. There will be leadership. There will be home groups. There will be counseling. There will be children's ministry, youth ministries, various ministries. There will be baptizing and communion, the two sacraments instituted by Christ. All those things that make up a church, leadership, the word of God, the worship of God, communion and baptism, community, discipleship, church discipline, all those things will happen at the various campuses, but will be knit together through the teaching. The benefits of this, we believe, are these. Number one, this will significantly increase evangelism. Significantly increase evangelism. Listen, there's just a reality that when you live 30 minutes away from your church, you can't invite a lot of people. And we think that people should invite people to church. We still believe that the church is God's ordained mechanism for communicating the gospel. We believe that people should come to church and get saved. Jesus Christ never ordained any other organization but the church. We love and we bless and we support parachurch organizations. We help support Campus Crusade and Young Life and YWAM and all these other parachurch organizations, Surfers for Christ and Surfers with a Mission and Christian Surfers. We support these things. But Jesus never started any of them. He started the church. And we believe that the church is his representative by his grace and his presence in it. And so we believe that people should be invited to church to experience, to meet the person of Jesus Christ. And it's difficult to do in a commuting church. Hey, come to church with me Sunday. Oh, great. That's about 30 minutes away. Service is about two hours. We'll have you pretty much all day. (laughs) We believe that a local church that going multi-site will increase evangelism and increase evangelism where people live. No longer having to leave neighbors, neighborhoods, businesses that they frequent, relationships, but being right there. Number two, we believe that this will allow us to reach more people in more places. We become all things to all men that we might by all means save some for the furtherance of the gospel. We're going to reach more people in more places, which translates simply to being obedient to the call upon this church to reach the coastlands. It's consistent with the prophetic message of Isaiah 54, verses 2 and 3, spread out to the right and the left. That's exactly what we're doing. And it's consistent with what Jesus told the disciples to do. He said, start in Jerusalem, then go to Judea, and then Samaria and the outermost parts of the earth. So for us here in our little world, Carpinteria is Jerusalem, God bless it. (laughs) And we've started in Jerusalem, and then we're going to Judea, and then to Samaria and the outermost parts of the earth. And see, live video feeds and screens and assorted gear make it possible in the same way that for the early church, roads, ships, and letters made it possible for the church to expand. And you know, in a room, in this room, there's 600 people right now. And in a room this size, you've got to amplify sound. And so we've got microphones, and then we've got power amps that make it louder, and then we've got loudspeakers from which the sound comes forth. And so we use that technology to communicate the truth of God to more people. And when we use that technology, that puts us on the cutting edge of the end of the 1800s. Microphones, amplifiers, speakers, the cutting edge of the end of the 1800s. In the same way, our message that's preached here Sunday goes out on the radio. We're in radio stations in different places all over the world, and we have an audience of hundreds of thousands of people, potential by radio, that hear these messages. And when we employ radio to reach more people, we are on the cutting edge of the early 1900s but we're on the cutting edge of it. In the same way, we preach a message here Sunday morning 
It's uploaded to the internet Sunday afternoon and thousands of people throughout the week are downloading it and it's permanent now once it gets on the internet so it continues to be downloaded over and over. So we're reaching tens of thousands more through the internet, video on iTunes and and the audio on iTunes and streaming, all the stuff that we do. And that puts us on the cutting edge of 1994, when the World Wide Web went public. We are on the cutting edge of 1994, and that's where we are as a church. The question becomes, what time period do we want to be on the cutting edge of? Not because technology is cool, though it is, but for the sake of the gospel. And because in Paul's time, it was used for the furtherance of the gospel. And throughout church history, men and women filled with the Spirit of God has ca- have capitalized upon it for the furtherance of the gospel. Not because we're trying to be relevant, but because we have to be obedient to our call to the coastline. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. So we believe that God uses technology and we want to do that to get the message out by all means. I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I might by all means save some. All means means that we need to consider new opportunities. All means means staying true to the Bible and not tradition. All means means surveying culture and delivering the message. Contextualization does not mean that we water down the message. Contextualization is giving God's answers to questions that people are asking and that they may not want to hear the answer to in ways they can access and understand. Contextualization is not changing or watering down the message. It's giving God's answers to questions that people are asking that they may not want to hear the answers to, but in ways that are accessible and understandable. And so every generation has to see how communication is happening and lay hold of it that more might be saved. Amen? See, what we want to be is flexible with methodology, but precise with theology. In other words, what we believe, unchanging. What we believe, unchanging. The substitutionary atoning death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. What we believe never changes. How we do it? Changing all the time. Changing all the time to save as many as possible. And so multi-site is not a change in doctrine, it's a change in method. And it's a method that God seems to be using in other places in the world. And finally, last thing, the benefits, not only evangelism increases, not only reach more people in more places, but people are going to be better cared for. People are going to be better cared for. Through going to multi-site, you have all the relational benefits of a small church. Access to key leadership, being known and knowing others, less cracks to fall through, greater accountability, all the relational benefits of a smaller church, but all the organizational benefits of a larger church. In other words, specialized personnel. You know, a small church can't hire specialized people. They need renaissance men, people that could do everything because there's a small budget. We can only have a few people. A larger church is blessed. As a budget grows, they can hire specialized people that are putting into practice best practices and innovating those practices. And now those can be shared amongst several churches within a network. So you have all the relational benefits of the smaller church and you have the organizational benefits of a larger church. Specialization, numerous and varied servants and staff, finances, technology, tools, buses, camps, and a good reputation. You see, by the grace of God, reality has a good reputation on the coastline. Evidenced by this, we've been looking at a building in Ventura and we met with a landlord. We looked at a few buildings and we met with a landlord of this one. And he said, okay, what do you do? Why do you, why, why do you want this building? Why do you want to lease this building? What's going on? We introduced who we are. And we said, yeah, you know, we, we're leaders of this church in Carpinteria. It's called Reality. And he goes, what's it called? Reality. He goes, what are you? A church. That's what it is. 
Okay, okay, now it makes sense. All these people have been talking to me about reality and wanting to get me to reality, and all my neighbors have the stupid bumper stickers. (laughs) And what he says is, oh, okay, great. Well, now I'm going to come. Now he's going to come. Now he's going to come. So we think that a good reputation by the grace of God will increase evangelism and people coming because they've heard what God is doing. And that's right and that's good and that's godly and that's by God. When God is moving, the people should hear. Heathens and converted alike, people should hear when God is moving. And so we believe that this will cause us to be obedient in the sharing of resources on the coastlands to be more effective, to reach more people. And finally, what happens now? Well, we pray. The leadership of the church has been praying for several months about the problem. It took several months for God to get our attention to realize it wasn't a problem, it was an opportunity. We were inside this box. He finally got us outside the box. So for two months now, we've known we were going to do this. And for two months, it's been under wrap, and the leadership of the church has been praying for two months' time. Now we're going to pray as a church for a minimum of three more months for a minimum of three more months. This thing is not happening before October, perhaps as late as January. We're not really in a giant hurry other than we're excited and we want to see people get saved. But there will be at least five months of solid, concentrated prayer before we ever have a service. This church, by the grace of God, the Lord accomplished through this church things that people said would never be done. I had church growth experts uh, contact me before this church started and say, uh, you know you're making a mistake by starting a church in that little town. According to demographics and the reality of things, you just won't be able to reach enough people. You're wasting your time in that little town. Don't do that. I had people offer me jobs to go to big towns and to put me on television and radio and reach a lot more people. But we felt a call of God to come here. And you see... Before we ever had a service, we prayed for five months. From the day we knew we were going to start a church in Carpinteria, we prayed weekly and fervently for five months. And at the first service, there's about 500 people. And 70 people got saved that first Sunday morning. It just doesn't happen in a little town of 14,000 people. It just doesn't happen. But you see, it does happen when we pray. It does happen when we pray. So we're going to have at least five months of prayer before we start this thing. Three more to go. So now the flyer that you have in front of you. That is an invitation to prayer this Thursday night and every Thursday night until we start this new work. We were going to have Thursday night services here at Reality Carpentry. It was going to be fun. It was going to be hunky-dory. We're going to do what we love to do every summer. We're going to come and eat food at 6 o'clock. Then we're going to come in here. We're going to have teaching and worship. And you know what? We just feel like as a staff that you guys are chubby enough. It's time to get out the door. (laughs) And start ministering. It's time to get out the door and start ministering. You've been saved. You've been healed. You've been forgiven. You've been set free. You've been washed. You've been cleansed. You've been empowered. Go intercede for somebody else. And so we're going to meet in Ventura, 730 at the building. We haven't signed a lease yet, but the landlord, by the grace of God, is letting us meet in there Thursday nights to pray. Everything that we've been praying for this thing is God is doing exceeding abundantly. And that building and that landlord is just one of them. The favor that we have thus far is incredible. So he's going to let us meet there Thursday nights. Directions are right there. 7.30, we're going to do just the nasty, old school, dirty, gritty prayer. We're just going to get into it. We're going to call upon the Lord for that city. There'll be some coffee and some snacks because Christians can't get together without some caloric intake. But we're not going to fool around much. We're going to get to the nitty-gritty and we're going to intercede. Those of you that live in Carpinteria, Summerlin, Montecito, Santa Barbara, Goleta, get over it, get in your car and go. They've been driving for years. We might fire up our bus. We'll send you an email. We might fire up our bus. You know, we might help you with the commute a little bit. But every Thursday night until the church starts, we're going to be praying down there at 730. I expect you to be there. So we're going to pray, and you need to pray. You need to pray as to where God will have you be. As to where God will have you be. Either location is cool with us. 
Either one is cool with us. And you will never hear the leadership of this church question or condemn your decision because we think you're going to make obedient decisions. You might live a block from the church in Ventura and you feel called to come here. I'm cool with you if you've prayed. We're not messing with you on that. You see, I believe that the church that a person is going to be at should be under the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit. And so you've got at least three months to pray and you need to pray. You need to ask the Lord where you'll be most effective and most fruitful for his glory, for the furtherance of the gospel, and for the kingdom, and you need to get yourself there. Wherever that is, be there. We're not going to question. We're not going to second guess. We're going to trust that all of us are going to make obedient decisions and be where God wants us to be. But this is where the church is going. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for leading us. Thank you for giving us fresh vision, Lord. And we're excited for what you're going to do in Ventura. We thank you for the way you've been preparing the ground, the prayer meetings that have already been happening under your instruction, Lord, and your leading. We thank you for the churches that are there and we bless them, Lord. Lord, we bless the churches that are there. We ask that we be free from a spirit of, com- of competition, free from striving, Lord, that there wouldn't be any weirdness. There's about another 100,000 people that need to get saved down there. So thank you for making room and calling us into your mission there, Lord. We ask that you continue to impart vision. We confess we don't all know all the details yet, except for that, Jesus, you are the center. And we're going to keep you right there. We're going to ask that you remain on the throne of this thing. And we're going to ask that you help us to remain yielded and humble to what it is you want to do. Thank you, Lord, for inviting us into your work. Thank you for being enthroned. Thank you for being our chief shepherd, Lord. 